0: 32 Counties. United by people. My name is Una. My name is Andrea. And this is United United United.
1: Ireland. Every week on United Ireland, we go under the hood of issues in Ireland. Beyond the headlines,
0: bringing you smart people
1: who know what they're talking about.
0: Before we do that, though, a little reminder that this podcast relies on your financial support over on Patreon. So make like the medicines and put some love in our work and become a patron over at patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. You'll notice I got rid of the petrol metaphor today. Mm. Coming up
1: over the next month, if you're enthusiastic about supporting us, um, you're gonna be even more enthusiastic about our dublin Bay South by election coverage. Myself and Andre had a production <laughs> meeting last <laughs> or no, yesterday haven't
0: not outside burger.
1: <laughs> yeah, one one not outside club. This was over Zoom. Don't know if you heard of it, Just a little piece of cloud-based software. Um and don't think I've laughed uh, as much as I have sharing that meeting uh, in a while, Andrea. We are going full CNN meets um Tramco. Uh, we are bringing Dublin Bay South to into a new era. Uh, I think of political coverage uh you're gonna want to hear it and it's going to be a by-election um campaign uh podcast coverage like no other before <laughs> maybe even the first one and uh, it's going to be uh gas we have um we're bet into the by-election you know yeah. like
0: Obsessed in a weird way. It's so bizarre. <laughs> so um we are gonna bring you that
1: obsession. Uh and uh you you come 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 along for the ride. Get on to patreon.com forward slash United Ireland. We're gonna be interviewing all the candidates. We're gonna be doing loads of stuff. Okay. But this week, you may have noticed um that myself and Andrea have been uh, you know, just doing that little old game of questioning. The meaning of life, <laughs> um, and, I, and I know we're not alone. <laughs> A lot of people right now are are wondering, what's the point? Is this what it was
0: for? Uh, queuing outside. Something- that all there is? <laughs> yes, that's all there is. <laughs> what's that out of?
1: I've no yeah. idea. Saxon City, gosh, Saxon City, right? Yeah. So just so basically, on that tip. This week, we are going to be talking to philosophy queen Laura Kennedy about the new, new existentialism that is gripping the universe, as Andre has here in caps. (laughs) Or rather, what happens when everything changes and meaning and purpose get muddied?
0: Are you having an existential crisis you're afraid of? can't even verbalize so it feels like we've waited and waited for all this shit to come back and now that it's back it's like oh is do what did I is that what I wanted why does it not feel so good it felt like I've waited this year and a half and I thought when I slipped into my old routine the world would be right again but alas listeners is it is it not but never fear! Don't go, don't go in too far, because we're here to guide you through the the anxiety and just you know the cute collapse of meaning.
1: Fun! So, choo-choo! All aboard the Jean Paul Sartre train to Simone de Beauvoir town. That's right! It's the new new existentialism special. Didn't see that one coming. Uh, but first, it's the state of the nation. Andrea, inis uh starch na nashun.
0: So, you have here the best ever quote from Liveline. I would dispute this, but we'll we'll go with it. Um, the quote is, they're going into Dunn stores and they're buying all their drink and they're running around like fucking werewolves. Sorry for cursing. <laughs> <laughs> love it, love it. Uh, yeah, so the the... Things have calmed down a little bit in Dublin City. Um, However, they're still a little bit uh, mental. Uh, uh, One of the girls from Trop Pop had a can fucked in her head last night on her way to the bus stop. Ah, here. Like, it's it's not gone away, um, even though everything is reopened. And, yeah, there's been a few stories of phones being robbed and smashed up with hatchets and the like. So... It's still a crazy town, but it's less of a crazy town than it was at the weekend. So it not that good. Um, So visit Dublin, a breath of fresh air.
1: Uh (laughs) (laughs) I was listening to the uh, report on Drive Time, I think it was, I think it was Fergal, uh, down in Cork. And of course, Cork, Princess Street, you know, You could just, like, everything was amazing and they're doing their outdoor dining. This is on the Monday and they're like, it's just fantastic. The atmosphere is amazing, blah, blah, blah. But you know, you know that everyone in Cork is totally playing it up Uh, (laughs) because Dublin was a shit show and you can hear them on the radio being like, and you know what else is great? Our relationship with the council. They've just been fantastic. (laughs) So, I mean, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that Cork was pretending to have everything uh, right to get at Dublin. Obviously Cork did have everything better (laughs) and um, big up all the Cork crew, you did it right. But you know, they're loving it down there. I know you're loving it.
0: Jose did a tweet thread of like different pictures of like Cork and then Dublin. And it's like, Cork, all pedestrianised, tables out in the street. Dublin, Marion Row, like all the traffic going through and like a barrier stopping the cars milling into the one table that's been <laughs> like put on a little island in the middle of the road. We're like, mm, this is so picturesque.
1: Cork has always, um, you know, has started like in the in the, in the the 90s and stuff. You know, it's like I- always been cooler than Dublin. In terms of that the more sophisticated vibe around food, Ballymaloo, Key Co-op. English market, all that palaver, and um, obviously uh, now they're they're getting the chance to shine, you know, and you know because reason? because Dublin has been showing up so much, so yeah. do well done, Cork.
0: Frustrating thing though, it's like Cork, Donegal County Council, they commit, they go, okay, this is a good idea, we'll do it. Here we go, we go, yeah, that's a good idea, we're going to do it twenty percent, and then mm. it's like it just looks shit. You're like, you've got this random table in the middle of the road. It's like, we either are or we aren't. Like, le- why do we have to keep like taking these cute little crap steps to be like, we'll do this much so we'll leave street. Now I know that the, there's a bigger picture around the car park and all, but like, we'll do a little bit and we'll test it out and then we'll like, we'll allow access from these times and blah, blah, blah. Just, just jump in. Just go for it.
1: Yeah. Chat. Yeah, you're right. We are like 20%, 20% of the city 20%, uh, effort. 20% effort. Yeah. Dublin City Council has commitment to issues
0: to, maybe, maybe to they the need city. To read, maybe they need to read the rules and the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> Let's send a care package this weekend.
1: Um, what, is, what else is going on? Oh my, oh, my word. I read that piece by uh, Katrina Crow in the Dublin Review really kind of very, you know, analytically and I think coolly, as Fintan O'Toole in The Times said, about the mother and baby homes report, uh, continues to be an absolute mess, this thing. Fintan had a really good piece on Tuesday. And uh, hey, I guess all of the survivors who were criticising the process and Maeve O'Rourke and other experts who really know what they're talking about, were right. Who the thunk? But the methodology, and when you kind of really step back to it Now and I really recommend people read that piece by Katrina Crown, the Dublin Review. Wow, it's just not good, and you're just like, Well, I guess we're gonna have to start again.
0: Yeah, Holly Kearns is calling for the report to be repudiated at the moment.
1: You just feel like I know we've had we've we've talked about this before, but you just feel like the entire point of this, well, obviously. The the, the the assumed point of this was that survivors who are mostly women, although there's a lot of uh, male people who were born there, like, were, like, was me- meant to be, like, heard and meant to be seen. And then the process makes people invisible, misrepresents stuff that they said, like, folds quotes into each other, like people taking notes. And and like, even as Finton was writing on Tuesday, like, you know, when they're doing their, the interview, like there's all these questions of how the interviews are done. They were recorded. And then like people were also taking notes. And then it seems that like, if you read Katrina's piece, like it does seem that people, some of those notes, like impressions of what people were saying or representations of what people were saying were ended up in the report. And as Finton says, like bog standards, like, even in journalism, even if you're doing like some like whatever, throwaway celebrity interview or whatever, you can't t- like allow your notes or your impression of what they're saying to be quoted. That's just like 101 stuff, you know. So to think that this was a a process by the state that was doing things in in such a, at, a, at the very least, sloppy, do you know what I mean? and at worst you know like systemically wrong um yeah anyway read that piece by Katrina Crown. and done review it's long but it's really good um DUP has a first new first minister Paul given
0: do you care <laughs> I do but like what's his buzz is he sound is he a brother? um so no <laughs> <laughs>
1: Basically, Edwin Poots, um, get on your boots, Edwin Poots, because he's kicking people out of the party. Poots has been on a little purgy wordy, getting the old people who are supporting um, What's Face Donaldson and all them uh, out. And, you know, that's always a good flex, isn't it? <laughs> Lead with an iron fist. Uh, make sure all of the moderates are gone. And then put in this dude, uh, Paul Gibbon, who's placing Arlene Foster. Uh anyway, look, DEP is imploding and you know it's not like they have a the future, so just just watch it all play out. Uh what else is going on?
0: Uh Phil Hogan, who uh has embarked on I suppose the default career of anyone who fucks up monumentally. He is now a consultant. The the journey of fuck up to consultant is a is a well-trodden path in Ireland. <laughs> Um, so yeah, get on to to, to Philly, baby. have been Consulting for all your new needs uh, if you need them. Um, and also in our state of the nation culture section, uh, the internet broke yesterday. Um, Kim Kardashian finally did it; she broke the internet. <laughs>
1: <laughs> By the time I read about the internet breaking, it was already fixed.
0: Um, You know what, like, I just think it's absolutely terrification because it just shows you how fast everything can come tumbling down by one server. Now, like, I'm sure there's more than one server or whatever, but like server down, uh, internet breaks, our, our fabric of society is being built around the fact that the internet works. Our post offices are being like closed down around the country. Our banks are have no staff. Like if you try and talk to someone in a bank, it's like the end of the world. You're literally like, please press seven, please press nine, please press 100, please press 3000. Like we don't have IRL experiences a lot of the time anymore. And I'm all for um, convenience of online banking and blah, 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 but, like, at the same time, it just shit scares me that just our whole way of life will just collapse in one moment.
1: Yeah, like, there definitely will be some, like, massive global uh, online outage, you know, at some stage.
0: Forever, though, not just for an hour.
1: Um, like, I hate the internet, so... I want. um, We
0: would not be able to do our podcast right now if we didn't have the internet.
1: No, but we would just figure that's only because we're in a pandemic and we have to do it remotely. We would just be in the studio. And then we could just like put it on tapes and hand it around to people. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, Jennifer Lopez signed a new Netflix deal. And that's all I have to say. What is the deal? Um, the deal it's, is like some like
0: movies or like follow her life or like a music story oh, there's so much possibility
1: I actually think it's like a multi-year deal for all different bits you know the way they just basically um, get it up
0: and just sign it
1: <laughs> yeah like the the way they signed up um, the Obamas and things like that and uh, so yeah that's
0: Vibe whatever Lo wants to do I'm here for it um, I want one of her new films the other night. I don't know if it's new, but it was new to me. <laughs> it, it was a curveball. Can't even remember what it was. Great story, Andrea. Okay, next. What's next, main bit. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay, now we're just going to dive in to the new, new existentialism. So, Andrea, what's the point
0: of of hot water? Of of tiramisu? No. Life. What,
1: uh, like, was this what it was for? I think is a lot of, uh, a question a lot of people are asking. Is this what I want? What if I'm no longer interested in the things I've been waiting to be available to me? I feel like my priorities have completely changed. What do I hold on to now that I'm not sure what's important anymore? That's right. It's the age of a new existential crisis. Collapse of meaning, breakdown of purpose. Welcome to the new, new existentialism. That's our tip anyway. uh, I think a lot of people have been on it. I was watching um, Bo Burnham's Inside the other day, kind of going, oh my God, everything's so dark and intense. I just don't even know what to do anymore. What am I doing with my life? Um, So to discuss this and maybe calm us down a little or not, Um, Laura Kennedy is a writer. She is a doctorate in philosophy. She's also the contributing beauty editor at the Sunday Times Style Magazine. So there, does a lot of stuff. And, uh, she is somebody who really knows her existentialism, shall we say? Um, she knows her philosophy anyway, and she knows her deep thoughts and has a handle on things that might be able to explain or interpret uh, or make inquiry into a lot of stuff that people are feeling and thinking at the moment. And I think a lot of stuff that people are kind of keeping to themselves for fear of verbalizing these profound thoughts.
0: Controversially yesterday, Holly Carpenter, uh, lovely Holly Carpenter, uh, Put, did an in, a tweet and she was like have you ever read a book that has improved your outlook on life and has helped you regain a sense of purpose or given you a boost of motivation I'm getting a lot of Instagram messages from people feeling lost post-pandemic and I want to share these responses on my story so it's across the board that people just don't know what the hell is going on.
2: Laura how are you feeling? Um, I like the Irish answer is I'm grand but uh, I suppose racked with existential dread the, right, the way we all are. Um, yeah, kind of like lost in a... Fine, doing normal things, functioning normally. And then kind of in the background, there's this weird churn that the world appears to be in and you feel quite small within it. And I think that's exactly what you're talking about. And I don't think I'm alone in feeling that. Tell me I'm not, right? No, you're absolutely <laughs>
1: not. And throughout the course of the pandemic era, considering your, you know, the depth of your background in intellectual inquiry and, and and philosophy and interrogating um you know the world basically how did you find um the the year and answer and a bit progress with regards to how you could relate it to different things that you have been thinking about and studying and researching over the years
2: well um It's been I think it's been quite a reactive period for most people uh, where it was hard to if you had a kind of overarching theory of of how you wanted to approach your life. It became harder and harder for that to be relevant or useful to you, Um, which I think is why there are so many people making big changes and decisions. But it's interesting that you guys wanted to talk about existentialism because I think it's kind of... um, it's a natural conclusion of lack of control on a mass scale. uh, And and it sort of refocuses you on yourself. And obviously there is also the fact that we've been at home, many of us, you know, many people by ourselves for a year. So you're just sitting in a room with the kind of uh, skeletal construction of your own life, realizing what you don't like about it. And it's very hard once you see that to unsee it. Um, So I think it's not a coincidence that there are, is a lot of relevance uh, and reliance now upon philosophies that focus quite mercilessly on the individual like stoicism because we don't really have in a in a general sense we don't have collective power right now or we don't feel like we do
0: mm. before we go on maybe we could get some context of what is existentialism
2: mhm for sure i mean it, it's one of those it's a it's a kind of a disputed complex uh, area because that word that phrase existential crisis is commonly used and we have a sense of what it means from you know common parlance but um even within philosophy existentialism is kind of disputed i think of it as more of a movement like a cultural movement than than a strict discrete philosophy um so it's it's complicated and kind of uh wide branching for that reason, because it stretches into literature and art and and far beyond philosophy. But the kind of main people, I guess, are are, uh, Sartre and Simone de Beauvoir. But arguably it started in the 19th century with Soren Kierkegaard, who focused on the individual and made this radical suggestion that religion and society are not responsible for imbuing our lives with meaning, that we as individuals are. So existentialism is really primarily interested in two things. One is authenticity, which is a really uh, relevant topic right now and a word that we use a lot. And the other one is the one that Una kept bringing up, which is meaning. And
1: like, does existentialism drop it? So when you talk about Sartre and Samantha Beauvoir and, and stuff like that, like really we're talking about and maybe this was a coincidence, maybe it wasn't, the 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 way thought was kind of turning um, in and around the latter half of the Second World War and its aftermath, right? Would that be correct to say? Pretty much, yeah. I mean, it's kind of heyday was the late 40s and 50s. Right. And so, obviously, it's, it's difficult to kind of separate, you know, this profound uh, world, not necessarily total world, but almost total worldwide, um, death fucking march and machine that was going on you know with the most abhorrent um uh, aspects of war you know nuclear bombs holocaust you know the 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 darkest the darkest things you could conceive of. And also I guess because existentialism is somewhat concerned with um the absurd, right? It's like the everything is totally bananas, so you know, um you're kind of scratching around for for meaning when some crazy stuff happens. Which, you know, there's correlation with the pandemic, but maybe have we actually been in a bigger existential moment since September eleventh, would you say?
2: Um, I mean, I think it's it's sort of a it's sort of a rolling condition, isn't it really? I think it's, it's all, it's, it's hard to apply an existential crisis to a collective because existentialism is fundamentally so focused on an individual, on the self particularly. So, you know, the idea that the self is really all we've got, which is, it lends itself to that idea that you were talking about, about the absurd, which is I think is a, something that um, Albert Camus talks about a lot. He was a fiction writer, not really straightforwardly a philosopher, and denied that he was even an existentialist. So, um, for that, it is a fuzzy. It is a fuzzy movement in that sense. But I don't think it's a coincidence at all that you know you talking about that post-war era. Those existentialists were the children of that generation that fought the First World War, um, that came out of that. Uh, initial pandemic uh, in 1918 that were um reacting in a in a radically individualist way to these situations that put us into groups whether we wanted to be in them or not and put us in situations where government structures and appeals to religion and collective morality obliged us to do things or you know reduce our quality of life or feel less free as people um or obliged us to take on um positions of patriotism or moralism that we didn't, you know, feel comfortable with taking on. Um, So I suppose that is echoed every time you have a kind of a mass culture changing event like 9-11 or like the last year. Um, We tend to return into ourselves because we realize that at the most primal level, that's all we've got.
0: So does does the existentialism thought give us any solutions or help us cope or what does
2: it provide or is it just a thought? Well, it it is helpful in that it it, it sort of rests on the idea that we construct ourselves. So the existentialism of the nineteen forties, people like Sartre, they had this uh, incredibly uh, radical for the time departure from like traditional philosophy from people like Aristotle that dictated that we have an essence and that our essence sort of uh, codes us to behave in certain ways and do certain things. Sarch said, no, that's not the case. We can construct who we are. And if you think about it, I think that's an immensely powerful thought in situations where we feel we don't have control, like the last year. It's, it's sort of a reorienting of our lives when we know that we can't change the world around us and sometimes we can't it allows us to focus on the things that we actually do have power to change uh and i think that makes us feel less helpless and less alone and that concept that know was talking about of the absurd of kind of recognizing the absurdity in tragedy and stupid things that happen and just how absolutely batshit life can be um it's quite, I think it's kind of, that's an inherent aspect of Irish culture. We tend to make grim jokes. We tend to laugh at funerals. We tend to, you know, be inappropriate because there's something that helps us in doing that. Um, So I think existentialism can be quite helpful, but it it can also, it can be negative if you allow it to. It can turn you into kind of a nihilist. It can make you unfeeling, but I don't think that that's what it was constructed to do. It, it, It can be comforting if you use it properly.
0: Mm.
1: So like those two kind of tent poles, let's say, like the self, constructing the self and meaning, um, I think those are the two dominant things that people are feeling right now. Like you mentioned um the the like the re- the return to the self and you know changing changing yourself. Um and you mentioned earlier like you think that like that's why loads of people are making big changes right now. And I certainly noticed in my own peers like people not just changing jobs changing careers leaving moving somewhere completely different like relationships like changing utterly like is that why is is that kind of existential percolation over the course of the year is that why those things are are happening and is it a good catalyst or you know could people be making wrong decisions right now? I suppose it's a ridiculous question, but you know what I mean?
2: Um, I mean, I think it's probably multi-causal. This stuff is so complicated, who knows? But uh, it certainly seems to be part of it. Like people I'm witnessing around me, the way I'm thinking myself, I think kind of existential crisis is a good descriptor for it. Like definitely some people are making horrible decisions. You know, like we all have that friend who even without a pandemic is like, I'm moving to Portugal. And you're like, "You you shouldn't do that. You haven't considered it. Um, but in general, I think a lot of us have been kind of pre pandemic functioning, like automata, we have our routine and we're very sort of, um, we feel both trapped and comforted by the structures of kind of power and, uh, hierarchy around us, you know, the company you work for, the, um, the community you live in, the, the hobbies that you do. And the last year has shown us really that all of that stuff that felt safe and certain and almost interminable that it would always be there. And that that gave us a kind of, that can be a source of misery as well as comfort. It dissolved away and the world became different and we became different. And it kind of, in a sense, I think it reminded us that we are, as a species, we like to function as though we are, um, separate to nature. They're not animals like other things and like other animals are. And this year has really shown us that everything we have and have built is not guaranteed to us. And so once you realize that, you might think, you know, uh, why am I an accountant if I don't feel like being one? Or why do I live in Leitrim just because my mother lives here? I don't like my mother or whatever else it is. Um, It just gave us a sense of finitude that we kind of forget about as we trundle on through habit um, and if life feels sort of suddenly like something you need to value then it makes sense that you would change if you wanted to um, and, and find fault with the complacency that you've lived in. And I think we're doing that on a mass scale and some people are making good decisions that will improve their lives and some people aren't but I think what everyone who's making a change is doing is, is trying to construct a better or more authentic or authentic self in a way that the existentialists would recommend that we do.
0: Mm. How is that going to, like, if everyone is, awa- let's call it a, a, almost an awakening to meaning and the quality of life, how is that going to affect the world culturally and with people probably moving away from a, an economic driven world and and realizing that status and all that kind of thing mean nothing? what is that going to mean for the makeup of the,
2: of our society? Gosh, I mean, I, 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 God, I haven't, that in one line. <laughs> that's, that's a little question. Uh, I mean, I don't know. It's interesting. Um, it's definitely interesting to think about. Like it might be, who knows that we might react the way we, we do as individuals, like we might collectively react the way we do as individuals when someone dies, which is, there's a temporary feeling of, realignment of all your values get this sense of almost invincibility because you're like well yeah i can tell my boss to f off because someone i love just died the world life is ridiculous i'm i can quit i can do whatever i want and then you get you like sink back into routine and, and that feeling ebbs away and the kind of insane power that comes with it ebbs away and sense of like control of your own direction so we might that might happen you know we might end up just being what we were before in a sense but um I don't know. I mean, I think the fact that so many people are changing their lives so radically, uh, it's interesting to think about how that's going to affect the next generation in particular, because each one seems to react to the one that came before. Um, I'm not sure what the world is going to look like, but I think it's going to be interesting. And at least for now, people seem to be focused on, what the power they have within their own lives in a way that is healthy and reassuring. Um, Because, you know, there are so many ways in which we don't have power and we're subject to structures and collective forces and external pressures to conform. But we seem to be in this really brief period where conformity isn't that important anymore. And that is so freeing. And I think uh, overall, it has to be a good thing. Yeah, that's a vibe for sure.
1: I mean, I just think that the the magic, even the energy of everybody realigning their priorities and you know quitting a job or just making a bold step has to have some kind of collective energy that's going to just shift something in the consciousness, even if we can't conceive of what that is yet. But moving away from the self and into meaning. Um, the, there's a lot of anxiety dropping in with the like quote unquote opening up post lockdown, um, not just be, because of the uh, intensity or or the increase in human interaction, in noise, in seeing crowds, in going back to a workplace, for example, having been still quiet away for so long. But I think that another part of of that anxiety is the anticlimactic confrontation that you have with all of these things that you were waiting for, or perhaps you thought you were waiting for, or you're told you were waiting for, like restaurants to come back, bars to come back, the cinemas to open, and you're kind of just standing there going, is this what it was for? Do I even want these things? That's mm. a really scary moment, I think, for people. But that, but that is is that a tenet of the kind of existentialist
2: pipeline that we're kind of in? i mean it, it 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 might be I think I don't think it was ever really about you know wanting stuff to reopen and wanting to kind of reengage with the world. I think primarily what we wanted was to return to a mindset where we didn't have to think about this shit, mm-hmm. you know yeah, um so being able to have lunch with your friends without worrying if someone is infecting somebody else just by being in the room, we kind of wanted a we wanted a return to um like that levity but i think what we're realizing now that we are getting that is that we never really had levity you know i think people in the last year people like me who are bad in in social group situations and feel uncomfortable and awkward allowed themselves to get into this line of thought that you know when it comes back it's going to be great to see people you know when i go to that birthday party it's going to be so meaningful i'm going to connect with everyone i love i'm going to hug them and then you realize actually this is never this is now. This this wasn't something I was good at before, and suddenly it's even harder than it was then. Um, so, I think there is also the aspect that you're talking about, which is that because we are fundamentally changed, we have kind of been reconstructed by this, whether we want to reconstruct ourselves or we've just allowed kind of external forces to do it for us. Um, it's hard to just have a pint and be with people without talking about the last year. And we're all exhausted by talking about the last year and we're sick of the way that it's changed us. We don't want to sort of make reference to it anymore, but we're kind of set with this task of building something new. And you can only do that out of kind of the wreckage of what came before. So um, I think we're just collectively exhausted and we hoped that maybe, um, you know, social interaction and the return of what looks familiar to us would be more than a band-aid but it feels like it isn't Hmm.
0: if that's not providing the band-aid then how do we find meaning in our new in our new world and our new situation that we're in now we've kind of it kind of feels like we've crossed a threshold into going back to what our world was but it's completely different so how do we go about assigning meaning now
2: well, I think uh, in the kind of existentialist tradition, that is that it is to focus on the self. It's to think about your own life and what you can change within it like i I, it, I don't think it's a coincidence that so many people are you know moving to new places or deciding to have families when before they thought, well, maybe it's not the ideal time or I'm not ready or they're coming out. They're just basically they're like they're they're sloughing off a former self that they were sort of tolerating and settling for. Um, and I think it's the response to this is to stop settling for things mm-hmm. as individuals and collectively to just pursue the thing you want, whether you think you're ready, whether you think you're able, you just do it because there is no other option. It's either that, or you sit in this weird sort of liminal state. We're all in there where, you know, like even taking a train ride, your body sort of automatically knows what to do to take a train to a place you used to go every day, but your mind is completely, um, locked in this weird surrealism where it feels disconnected from what you're doing. Um, And I don't think it's easy to cut yourself off from that awareness. You have to do something with it or it will kind of make you crazy.
1: Yeah, it is kind of like the pandemic is a metaphor for, you know, general coasting or limbo or, you know, operating kind of behind frosted glass when you're mm-hmm. constantly searching for like, where's the clarity? Where's the where's the bit where I feel like super duper vibrant instead of just like, you know, uh, going through the motions or whatever. But one mm-hmm. of the things that I'm interested in as well, because I feel like, I feel completely changed, you know, internally from this process, but I'm not quite sure what that change is and because I cannot... I suppose maybe this, I've done a lot of self-interrogation, but I also definitely realise that a lot of how I am is obviously in relation to other people. And when I'm not bouncing off other people and having those social connections in the real life space, I'm less sure of who I am or or how I am Mm. at least. But, um, what about people who maybe don't seem to be asking these questions of themselves? Like people who haven't kind of really sat with themselves or met themselves along the way, um, and and I and it's and it's a real interesting state because it's it's very diverse. It's not about like a particular type of person or or age or gender or class or 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 profession or anything like that, but. I definitely do think that like there seem to be certain people who just like, are like, no, I just want to like, boom, that's it, chapter closed. And you kind of feel like, Jesus, if a global pandemic isn't going to make you reassess <laughs> what the <laughs> fuck is going on and you're like, how can we neg- er, navigate those relationships? Because it's almost like, talking to somebody, you know, the dog and the meme with the kitchen on fire mm-hmm. and you're like, uh, your kitchen's on fire and they're like, no, everything's fine. You know, it, it, I just feel like I just can't fucking relate, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. Well, I think that's one of the ways that, that everything is, um, has changed. It's, it's, it really is in a sense, it is like a death because I think we're all sort of individually burdened with this really horrible work that we have to do you know like when somebody dies and you're like all right well now I have to go through a bureaucratic process that lasts for months and I'm actually heartbroken and but someone's asking me to choose flowers and what like what is this I feel like I'm an LSD um so I think it, it's just it would be so nice to return to how it was before but It's definitely the case like this has changed us all in so many ways. And some people appear not to be changed by it, which in itself might be an indicator of, you know, deep trauma, who knows. But I think a lot of us have kind of lost... Friends and connections and relationships, because we just drift away from each other. We don't have anything in common anymore. I think we all know, you know, those friends we have, especially the ones that you have from when you're younger. You don't see that much, and if the friendship starts to be like, you know, a wool jumper that went through a hot wash, it starts to get a bit like this as they continue to see you the way you were, you know, 15 years ago, and not kind of allow you the space to be who you are now. for their own reasons or you know they just don't enjoy you as much as they used to enjoy your former self um so it's 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 terrible in a way because we're all so tired we're all so confused and sad and now we're like okay well who do i need to who do i need to reevaluate in my life you know are, are you still a healthy person to be around are you still uh, making a contribution to my life am i still making one to yours And I guess, yeah, also, do you need help? Like, are you okay? Because you seem like you're functioning in this very robotic way as though nothing has happened. And clearly lots has happened.
0: Uh, You talk about being tired all the time. Is there a solution through existentialism that will make us not be tired anymore? (laughs) (laughs) Good question, Andrea. (laughs) But I need a solution. (laughs) (laughs)
2: <laughs> i mean i guess i'm talking about that like uh existential exhaustion type thing um but i think actually it's it's kind of like um it's sort of a, a macro cosmic way of um you know when you know you have to address something in your life and you just keep not doing it because it's, it's going to be so hard if you like do that. <laughs> And then, yeah, you put so much, you put so much energy into the avoidance that that makes you tired. And if you just address the thing, you would put the energy into something constructive, but also at the end, you'd get that feeling of, I dealt with that, that's done. Or, you know, I, I, I'm I'm on top of it. We always feel so much better when we are actively dealing with something than when we're not. It's just how we are as a being. Um, so I think yeah, the the gross answer to that question is in general, not to avoid things that are terrifying. And right now, so much is terrifying. But I think there's loads of opportunity for kind of growth and development and and positive changes. Um, I think it would be kind of tragic for anyone not to use the last year to think about whether they are fulfilled and whether they have meaning in their life. And if they don't, how they can put some in there, because it's such a it's such a fundamental human necessity and kind of to return to what Una mentioned earlier, like post 9-11 in that era and stuff, Nietzsche was one of the existentialists who's kind of most beloved now. And he talked about kind of how we live in a, in an era after which God is dead and by God, he really means meaning. Um, So all of these traditional constructions used to give our life meaning, like, um, you know, rigid hierarchical societies and religion and stuff like that a lot of us don't have that anymore. So we have to make meaning for ourselves because we still need meaning. Totally. Uh, it's like like the less
1: like, what is the meaning of life and more how do I create meaning in my life?
2: And it's okay for that to be small, I think as well. Yeah. We have this sense that it has to be this, uh, you know, sort of God scale, massive uh, thing, but it doesn't. I think it just has to be a feeling of, being invested in in the life you live which is hard but it's less hard than you know feeling like you have to invent something or um, you know become a guru or something like that uh it can be small because most lives of our lives are small and that's a good thing i think can
0: you pinpoint how you've changed over the last year
2: you know I, i'm still figuring it out because i think one of the the interesting things over this last year for me personally, that's really scared the crap out of me has been a couple of things have happened in my life and I have reacted to them in ways that I didn't recognize at all. Um, where I felt like my instinctive response kind of emotionally to something was that of a completely different person. Mm -hmm. And I didn't know if that was, um, because you know, something is kind of broken or something's gone off Or because I'm just different now. So I'm trying to figure out whether those responses and kind of how distressed I became by a couple of things that happened this year in my life are symptoms of, you know, that I need to fix or things that I need to listen to. And it's really hard to, it's hard to know the difference, but yeah, for sure. I mean, I've, I've definitely like a lot of people tried to make some changes and tried to be a bit less, um, monstrous to myself i think because most of us don't give haven't given ourselves the credit of recognizing the mass situation that we're in you know we're still kind of berating ourselves about work or family or you know that we don't call our friends enough or you know how we look that's been a lot that's been a big one for a lot of people this year um in some ways we can be narcissistic and and i can be narcissistic and kind of you can put too much down to you um, and forget the wider circumstances that you live in so um yeah there's been a bit of that did that answer the question that seemed tangential yes, no Sorry. no
1: that totally did um before you go well by the way what
2: was the focus of your doctorate in in philosophy it was um it was in the philosophy of psychology so it was basically um looking at the fundamental views uh, or ideas in psychology that formulated that field when it's separated from philosophy because originally it was all just philosophy and um, kind of criticizing it a bit for not recognizing the ideas that it's built upon. Um, I feel like it takes a few fundamental uh, presumptions for granted um, and then goes from there. But yeah, that's what it was about. Juicy.
1: (laughs) But but what what things can people read to make them feel less alone or less... um, Overwhelmed, I suppose, with the thoughts that they have. I've definitely found myself gravitating towards, you know, w- literature and mm-hmm. about about um, ex- like existentialism or like I recently read that Al- the Alison Bechdel one, the the secret to superhuman strength, which is all about like what is the point? And um, there's been a lot of Beckett floating around my desk and stuff like that. Um, mm-hmm. But what do you, what what comes to mind for you um, and also like Viktor Frankl and and things like that, what comes to mind for you about what would be helpful for people to read at this point?
2: Um, well, I, I always recommend a book that I really love called uh, the constellations of philosophy by Alan de Botton. Cause it kind of amazing book. It's, it's a wonderful, it's a wonderful, accessible, like life affirming, reassuring book. Um, So yeah, I mean, it looks at certain areas of philosophy uh, that are totally practical to everyday life um, and and helps you to kind of understand them better and change behaviors and stuff like that. I also, to be honest, at times like this, I don't, for for kind of comfort, I don't usually go to like straight dry philosophy because it's not comforting. It's often pretty drab and repetitive and, you know, cold and what you need is a bit of warmth. So I think um, it's, you, I mean, you can go and read like people like Sartre. N- Nausea is a is a a novel. He wrote philosophy, but he also wrote novels. You can read people like um, Albert Camus, The Stranger. But those books are not or the plague. plague. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, I wouldn't describe them as um, fuzzy comforting books. So uh, I, at times like this, I tend to enjoy autobiographies like. Um, Sherry Turkle, the American academic, wrote an autobiography called The Empathy Diaries. And it's a wonderfully reassuring, life-affirming book um, about an interesting life that kind of had objective tragedy in it and and how it was overcome and really, I guess, constructing yourself in really weird circumstances and figuring out your identity. Um, So, yeah, I mean, those are the sorts of books I go for um, because I think they're more of a a treatment for an ailment, then, um, you know, there are times I think when you want to read the harder stuff to help you figure things out. And then there are times where you want to be in the way good literature does kind of led gently to a truth you can feel your way through. Um, And I think now is the time for that really. Fab. Laura, I think
1: um, I feel better now than I did at the start of this interview, which I think is the best thing (laughs) for me. You know, just focusing on the self here for a moment, Mm -hmm. uh, I think is uh, the best thing that can happen. So thank you so much for your, for your insight, for your wisdom and for your really honest thoughts. They're very helpful. Thanks.
0: What's getting in the sea this week, Andrea? Getting in the sea this week, there is uh, Mika, I think that's how you pronounce it, Mika. Yeah. Yeah, Mika, yeah. Crisis in Donegal. Um, loads and loads of people in Donegal's houses and their forever homes are falling apart because the contractor um, used uh, Mika mix in the cement, and there's literal holes just popping out of their houses. Um, and the business who created the houses closed their business and opened under a different name. Um, so there's no retribution really for these people Um, and yeah I just can't imagine having like bought a house or built a house and it just all crumbled because of someone else's um, like uh, like incapability or whatever so uh, that whole thing can get in the sea in general
1: there's a protest in Dublin next month, next week about that, actually.
0: Uh, deserved to be supported. Yeah.
1: And now it's time for
0: It's Bananas! Now this is so bananas. It's so bananas. So don't you know the way we talk about having a vacant property tax a lot on the podcast and how we, like, there's so many buildings that could have, like, we talk about the homes crisis all the time and and um, but we actually have loads of buildings and that they are actually being hoarded for wealth and if we actually put taxes on them, that they would be released or sold on and people could live in them. Um, So you think that's a great idea. But then last year, councils were owed 21.5 million in vacant site levies, um, but only collected 21,000 of that. Um, And this is from uh, an Report by Killian Woods in the Sunday Business. House. He was fast becoming one of my favourite journalists. Um, and he, the, I think it's all well and good calling for a vacant property tax, but if no one's going to enforce it or collect it, it's all completely meaningless. And what this has shown is that it's all well and good having these vacant site levies, and if there's twenty one million in the ether to be collected, but only twenty one thousand was actually collected that we're, we really need to look at how a vacant property tax is going to be rolled out.
1: Yeah, absolute joke shop. And that was 21K from one, I think just one council collected that Sligo. So there's 21 point, as you say, 21 and a half mil there for the taking. And the councils can't collect it due to, I think one of them said due to manpower. It's like...
0: Sure, that's a whitewater rafting facility.
1: Just fucking, yeah, <laughs> just get somebody to collect it. Like, what is the crack? Uh, when you talk, So this is vacant sites. I believe that in terms of vacant property, that this year, um, later in the year, when people are doing their tax returns in like October, that revenue is going to have a new thing where if you are a homeowner of a vacant property, you have to declare it. Mm-hmm. So it's going to be the first time that government through revenue will actually be able to identify how many vacant properties there really are in the state and where they are because obviously there's loads of high-end apartments in Dublin lying idle. Yeah. when we have a housing crisis. So I think that, that there might be kind of obviously this should have been done fucking ages ago but but that is an interesting um an interesting in into actually even identifying uh, where all these vacant gaffes are because this is the vacant site thing Um and also the council has all councils have like their own yeah. you know uh, va- a lot of not a lot but at least to some uh, vacant sites as well that aren't being used
0: but, but self declaration also I like I should trust everyone and I know that's like you can only trust yourself but like hi, like
1: yeah. But if you in this case, if you're not declaring to revenue, that's a bit different from not just not like, saying you know, have it. do you know what I mean? So yeah. I think that that's kind of a smart thing.
0: I, yeah, but also I just, maybe I'm just not trusting of people, not people. I trust people. Landlords. Landlords. Landowners. <laughs> Who find loopholes. Like, yeah, 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 do you know what I mean? It's like, oh, anyway. Look so, at the good side. It's happening and there's a local property, uh, thing uh, being found out great but it's not really bananas that is bananas
1: and now it's time for our fave bits
0: what are your fave bits this week Andrea Um again I keep reflecting on what the fuck I'm doing with my life because I don't have one bit of culture in my grasp no music no like shows no uh, TV shows or anything on this' like this is meant to be our culture section and then I beat myself up about it and then I think about our episode today and it's okay that I don't have those things so my things are quite random again first up the universal basic income for artists that Catherine Martin introduced is one of my favorites I mm. think it's a step towards Uh, creating the society we want to live in and valuing um, the creators within that and what they bring to our lives. Yeah.
1: Hmm. I don't know. I mean, I have lots of like complex thoughts on UBI that nobody is going to enjoy. But yeah, I mean, I'm not looking forward to a decade of... um, discourse on we need to raise the basic income for artists (laughs) as opposed to we need to fund the arts and I also am sceptical about things that further embed relationships with the state to the state and also surely the issue is that we live in a society where people who contribute the most beauty to that society somehow cannot live in it without state welfare and should we not be looking at dismantling the fundamentals of that society where there's never any shortage of jobs of stuff that is actually shite and you can't make a living doing something beautiful I think we need to look at the fundamentals
0: yeah but also in the but in the meantime give people
1: free money you know Yeah. thank you yeah. Okay. Not fair.
0: Just kidding on my five bits. <laughs> <Jesus laughs> Sorry. Uh, also, during the pandemic, I spent a lot of time going. Oh, I can't wait till I am back uh, with a uh, income so I can support small businesses that I have been coveting. And one of those was Paradiso Flowers, who are based in the Liberties, and they deliver within a five kilometer radius. And I ordered some of their flowers last week, and they're so beautiful and like a little so interesting and like a little bit a little bit uh kooky and fab and i would urge you if you're in the in the area to have a look at them very nice uh also the eighth um we haven't really mentioned that film at all have we (laughs) on uh it's in the stella on sunday night like full-on real-life cinema experience in the gorge stella stunning um one of my favorite bits The Dublin Mountains, (laughs) random again. But, so I've been driving up to the Dublin Mountains just, it's just kind of past Rathfarnham. And it's astounding how it's, how you can feel you're right in the middle of countryside so fast and how it's so stark and there's so little people around you and it's literally 20 minutes away from your gaff. It's mad. Nature, huh? Then my favorite food are both ice creams at the moment little Moons. they're these little ice cream mokis they're like uh, rice um rice something and ice cream in the middle they're little balls of joy and they're a it's big' like, we're like ice cream arancini. yes but like it's it's kind of a the rice dough maybe it's called is kind of chewy and jelly so it's like a weird like japanese because they're from japan but it's like a weird like texture and it's just such a gorgeous experience and they're a big thing on tiktok so all the girls in Trop pop arrived in with these like look we got little mints. i was like what is that and then i was like oh my god they are divine they're available in the asian market and they're they have coconut vanilla strawberry cheesecake um, but you can get pistachio they're on delivery in London, so no doubt that will be in the post. They're very delicious, but also delicious. Teddy's ice cream is in Dublin 8. Tealings have Teddy's ice cream, so you can get a 99 uh, in the hood. Delighted. They're great fave bits. I really enjoyed that.
1: My fave bits, I mentioned it um, in our chat with Laura. Uh, inside the Bow Burnham special on Netflix, I'm completely allergic to any art, about the pandemic, um, you know, any of these things. I just, pfft, I just don't, like, I don't care. I'm in it. I know. You know, so it's kind of like, I, I'm not ready as well. And I think that there was a lot of crap stuff made at the start, you know, all these like responses to lockdown and stuff. And it's like, oh, you know, just, just, just chill out. Like the, the, the rush to um, respond to encapsulate to like this very like productivity driven art making um that happened at the outset of the pandemic you know obviously most of it was really bad and it just really felt like a very destructive rhythm to like oh yeah this is happening let's respond let's respond it's like oh my god can everybody just chill out anyway um however this it is probably for me one of the first really, really great pieces of art to emerge from this era. Um, it is Bo Burnham's comedy special on Netflix that he filmed himself over the course of a year or so. Uh, it is incredibly intense, it's quite dark, many trigger warnings about different things in it. Um, but it, it's 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 amazing, you know, and and uh, I i thought it was. It was really kind of astonishing, actually. So if you have an hour or so to spare, um, give it a lash if you haven't already watched it. I'm not exactly the first person to say it's work of genius, but, you know, uh, it's up there. Um, The other thing that I'm enjoying is High on the Hog on Netflix, which is a cooking show uh, ostensibly about how African cuisine transformed America. Um, And it's so it's about like, um, African cuisine. it's also kind of like a history of slavery um, and, and, the re- and the invention and resilience of people who were enslaved coming up with cuisine in the most desperate of circumstances and how that changed America so much and, and also was was you know commodified. Um, really fascinating. Uh, piece on, on South Car. The second episode is about like the Carolina golds, the rice plantations of South Carolina. Um, yeah, just I'm learning loads from it, which, which is cool. My other fave bit is I was in beautiful Carrick on shore in Tipperary at the weekend, and I had never spent any time in Carrick. What a gorgeous town and amazing, beautiful river sh- on river shore, which just. Is gorgeous and they have the blue way that goes from Clonmel to Carrick. And I don't know, I just thought it was so gorgeous. It was very, um, and the weather was amazing. I felt like I was in France or something. Lush, green, delightful vibes. Um, My book of the week, oh yeah, so now it's time for book of the week. Okay, book of the week this week. Um, there is a book that I read by an author called Sally Rooney, but you're not allowed to talk about it because uh, you have to sign an NDA before you read it. So I'm not talking about that one yet.
0: Oh, <laughs> but- Mm-hmm. Like influencers we're like, oh, I've got such an exciting project. Can't <laughs> talk about it right now. Though.
1: It's out in September. I'll talk about it then. Um, but, but another book that I am reading at the moment is by Susan McKay. It is called uh, Northern Protestants on Shifting Ground. And it is a kind of a follow-up to a book that she wrote 20 years ago called Northern Protestants and Unsettled People. And uh, she, oh, Susan McKay is like one of my favorite journalists. She's just so fantastic. She's a brilliant writer, totally human, amazing analysis. She's just fantastic. She's actually on byline soon. So I uh, hope everybody's looking forward to that. So, yes, the book is Northern Protestants on Shifting Grounds, on Shifting Ground by Susan McKay. Uh, this podcast is produced by Andrew Mangan of Castaway Media. Crystal Clear gave us his tuna chicken roll for our soundtrack. Sarah Fox did all of our design.
0: This week's Tuna Chicken Roll is, it's an old song, but it's uh, a remix that I discovered that is just very summery and joyous. It is My Head is a Jungle by Wankelmut, remixed by B. Barato. Woo! i oh, sorry, I forgot the end. I've been Una Mulally. I've been Andrea Horan. This has been United Ireland, and that was... Finding solutions in existentialism and learning how to pronounce it.